Welcome to Identity Talk, a show dedicated to unearthing stories about compelling people, doing compelling things, and making compelling discoveries about who they are. I'm Jana Lopez, your hostess. Each episode of Identity Talk, you'll discover illuminating conversations with guests from all walks of life. My life's mission as a book coach, writing guide, and retreat leader is to guide people like you towards clarity and connection through writing. I blend experience and intuition to take your writing to unimaginable results in your creativity and productivity. I offer private and small group retreats in stunning Santa Fe, New Mexico. I'm the published author of the acclaimed book, Me, My Selfie, and I. If it's time to unearth your own stories, write that book and need clarity, guidance, or support, visit JanaLopez.com. And now, let the unearthing of stories begin on Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. Welcome to Identity Talk, and it's a gorgeous spring day, depending on where you live. I am in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and my guest is in Sonoma, California, Peter Richardson. And I have to read his whole bio because it's a thing. <laughs> he like <laughs> sent me the bio that he probably sends out a lot of times, but there's a lot to cover. So we'll We'll go over the formal bio, but more importantly, as we get to unravel some of this, we'll get to hear more about the bio, the unauthorized version. Right. <laughs> uh, Peter Richardson has written critically acclaimed books about Hunter S. Thompson, The Grateful Dead, Ramparts Magazine, and radical author, editor, Carrie McWilliams. Savage Journey is the latest book, a biography about Hunter S. Thompson that's gotten lots of critical acclaim. And um, we're going to talk about the difference of this book, looking at Hunter, Hunter S. Thompson's work as a body of work and the relevance of the work itself, which I thought was really interesting. His essays have appeared in The Nation, The New Republic, The Los Angeles Times, San Francisco Chronicle, Los Angeles Review of Books, Literary Hub, and many other outlets. He's also a book reviewer. And is that's something I'm so curious about. I can't wait to talk about that. Uh, he speaks frequently at universities, museums, book festivals, and historical societies. And the thing I'm also interested in is since 2006, Richardson has taught courses on California culture at San Francisco State University. He has a PhD in English from the University of California, Berkeley, and BA in economics from University of California, Santa Barbara. That's a lot of stuff. <laughs> Pretty soon your bio is going to be so long, you're going to need a like cliff note version on on that. So I guess we can start with how I come, came across you because that is always the introduction on my interviews is why I choose to reach out to somebody and how I come in contact with them. And we were connected on Facebook and I don't remember exactly who it was or what it was or how I read something that you had written about Hunter S. Thompson and I think it was just when your book came out. So I want to say three, three or four months ago. And what it was that you said struck me as something is so thoughtful 
and honest and reflective and educated, I guess, in a way that I don't typically come across commentary related to Hunter S. Thompson. And I think I commented on one of your posts. I'm sure I tried to say something (laughs) smart sounding or whatever, because I knew I was dealing with somebody who was really smart. (laughs) And then I started doing a little bit of research and I was just fascinated. So I thought, you know, we're going to have a good conversation. I reached out and you said, yes, Mm -hmm. here we are. Yep. So when did the book come out? Savage Journey was recent. Came out in January. Um, We decided to bring it out um, that month, partly because it's the 50th anniversary of of some of his work. Um, For example, um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas came out as a book in 1972. And then, of course, he went on, Thompson went on to cover the presidential campaign in 1972. And, you know, people like anniversaries. The media really like anniversaries. So so it seemed like a smart way to go. And just from an inside publishing perspective, sometimes it's good to bring books out in January because there's so much competition in the fall for uh, the holiday season. And, and um, you know, if it's not that kind of book, then sometimes it's better to bring it out a little bit later. Yeah. And I noticed that your introduction that I had read, you had signed it January of 2020. And I thought, holy shit, if you would have known what you were getting into in terms of the circus of weirdness and fear and loathing of mm-hmm. <laughs> culture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it could have been a different book. So at what point in time did you start and when was it actually complete? Oh boy, you know, um, I probably took two years to write it. I, uh, you know, those were COVID years. So, so some of the work was slowed down by that. A lot of the archives were closed and libraries and such. People were by their telephones. So a lot of times you could reach people mm-hmm. on the telephone. But uh, I figure I had a pretty good running start on it because I'd written books um, that had to do with um, two of his editors. And, and every time I wrote about them, I would go back and, and um, read Hunter Thompson's, usually his letters, you know, the letters to those editors. And they were so interesting that, you know, I, I, I had a hard time dragging myself away mm-hmm. from, from Thompson's letters to return to my project. Mm-hmm. And that was a pretty good indication that I, should, that I should write about Hunter Thompson next. So I decided to take that on. And, and I knew, you know, I knew it was, I had to be careful because, you know, there's already a short shelf of books, biographies about, about Thompson. And so as usual, and what I used to tell when I was an acquisitions editor, I always told my authors is, what's your unique contribution? What are you going to add that hasn't already been said? Nobody wants to, to read a um, kind of reheated version of something that somebody else has done. So I do teach this material at San Francisco State. So I was always in touch with it and talking about it, presenting it. Mm. Students were writing about it. So I felt pretty close to the material, and I also wanted to—I also wanted to situate it more in the Bay Area than some of the other um, Hunter Thompson books have. And I wanted to argue, as you know, that that I—I I argued that that his time in the Bay Area, though short, was really formative for him. So I, I spent a lot of time kind of situating him and his work, how the Bay Area and what was happening here shaped him as an author. Do you think that as an author, you personally uh, look at 
I mean, I guess when you said as an acquisitions editor, you probably have the business perspective of from a publishing standpoint of what people do acquire, what does sell, how it does work. How much of that influences you when you, you start to think about writing a book? Because we have these interests that we choose to pursue. Mm-hmm. And I would think if there was something that you were really interested in doing, but you knew from a publishing business standpoint, it wasn't really going to make the best sellers list. How do you, how do you grapple with your personal passion and your professional knowledge? Well, you definitely have to strike those balances. I mean, sometimes, you know, there's a reality check, you know, you're super fired up about something and you talk to a couple agents and editors and they're like, I don't really see it. You know, here's the problem one and problem two and problem three. Most of the time, it's just it's just trying to find the right home for that project. Usually, there's a publisher out there. Often, there's a publisher out there that that will be interested in it, but you just have to figure out where that is and whether or not that's going to be a good match for you. Um, you know, I can think of a figure that I really think is uh, fascinating, but but other people, editors, have told me I, I don't see it. I don't see I don't see a market for this. So. And I once uh, was talking to Adam Hochschild, who I really respect as an author, and, and uh, he was one of the co-founders of Mother Jones Magazine, too. And uh, I said, I'm really interested in this one topic. And I, I said, partly because I just read a book about it. He goes, isn't that the way it always is? You know, you're kind of fired up about something because you just read a good book about it. Right. And then it's sort of like, well, does the world need another book if 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 there <laughs> if there's a, a new one that just said everything that that you wanted to say? So it's hard, but I'm I think the market really rewards the people who do their homework and figure it out and figure out what's already been said about the topic and where you know their contribution will fit and who will be interested in it. And the more work you can do along those lines, I think, as a as an author with a with an idea, the better it's going to be. It's going to help your agent or your editor figure out whether they want it. It's going to help you know the sales staff, assuming that you know it's it's completed. Is the sales staff going to get what this book is about? And then when they sell it, is the retailer going to figure it out? So the more work you can do up front, I think, the easier it is to kind of slide all the way through the system more mm-hmm. or less without a lot of friction. What what you're describing, and this was was something I, I want to know is what what do you gauge the criteria on for being a critical work or analysis of, of a place or a time or a person and then the the pursuit of the scholarly study. So how do you base your critical criteria? What are you looking for? How do you how yeah. do you you personally gauge that? Well, I mean, first of all, as you know, if you want to write a book about something, you better be very interested in it. It's really hard to complete a book project if if you if it's not going to sustain your interest for all the work that you have to do to to you know do the research and 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 write the book and you know do everything that goes along with that. So that's the number one thing. You know, are you absolutely fascinated by this? How how much passion are you bringing to it? Um, and how much of that can you communicate to other people? I mean, the first two books that I did, I mean, in some ways they arose out of the fact that I was amazed that I hadn't heard about that person or that magazine, that I had grown up where I grew up in the time that I grew up. 
And somehow I managed, and I read books and, you know, my friends read books and somehow I had managed to get through life into my forties without ever hearing about Carrie McWilliams or Ramparts magazine. So part of it was just an extraordinary urge to, you know, tell the world about this thing that I just found out about. And also in some ways to correct an oversight, you know, mm, that, that mm-hmm. these things are really, these people, I was trying to lift them up and, as topics so that other people would know more about it. That's a hard way to go because, you know, typically, um, as you know, publishers are usually looking for ways to um, publish books for which there's already a kind of known audience and, you know, not only known, but easy to find, you know, right. easy, to mar- easy to market to. So the second two books, one on the Grateful Dead and one on Hunter Thompson, there was an audience there. And, and there the problem was a little different because, a lot of people knew about the Grateful Dead. A lot of people know about Hunter Thompson, but over time, their images had sort of turned into stereotypes or even cartoons mm-hmm. in a way. So, so what I tried to do with those books is, you know, sort of turn it and and deepen the, the conversation and and as I say, situate it a little bit differently and present it a little bit differently, so that people could remember what made those people cool in the first place. You know, yeah, and that's what, interesting. It might have been a different problem with each thing because Hunter Thompson has a mixed bag of people that from people that knew him and the public, what what they believed about him or what the cultural zeitgeist had created about him and sort of ensconced about him. The Grateful Dead had this loving, loyal following of, you know, people that trekked around the country for years, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. to be with them. So I imagine the unraveling of the persona from the actual passion of whatever drove those people might've been approached a little bit differently. I'm just thinking as a writer myself, like you would have to address those things to get into the deeper things that might be. No doubt. I mean, you know, Hunter Thompson was no flower child, you know, he, in, in some ways, even though, even though his, um, literary formation was playing out when the Grateful Dead were were forming the band in San Francisco in 1965. That's that's when Thompson was in San Francisco too. And in many ways, they were shaped by some of the same forces, and and sort of um, inspired by some of the same uh, things and people and events. But they were very very different stories, as you say. And so they had to be, they had to each be taken on their own terms and, and also not too much, you know, um, what's the word hagiography, you know, you don't want to present them as, as, you know, some sort of um, super, um, you know, stylized or you don't want to, you don't want to overlook the dark, the darker parts of their lives and their work and their experiences. So, So you have to tell the truth. And, and so in an effort to sort of uh, address or challenge some of the stereotypes, you know, you have to, you have to do it as honestly as you can. But in both cases, it was in all of those cases, all four of those cases, it was always because I thought this is an important story that people don't know enough about. And in some cases, they would have to go back and review what they thought they knew or refresh their memory about why it was important. And, and also, as I say, it really helps that I teach this information or teach this material to students, most of whom are born after 9-11. They didn't have this experience. They need to hear about 
all of the background and all of the figures and all of the social movements and all of the cultural ones and the artistic ones and the musical ones. They're interested if you can set it up properly, but they, they're not drawing on deep wells of information about what happened in San Francisco in the 1960s. So I, I tried to do that kind of carefully and methodically the way I do with my students to make sure that they, they themselves are not falling back on, you know, some stereotypes that maybe they picked up somewhere. And in many cases, they don't even have the stereotypes. The way kids get information today, the way they internalize information, the way they process information and the way they form perceptions based on that information is so different mm -hmm. than the way I did or you did. In some ways, I think they're used to the hashtag and 140 characters and then, you know, cancel, cancel somebody yeah. or whatever, oh, well, yeah, you know, yeah. and it's like all of a sudden they don't have to understand the context. Right, right. And Can when I give you an example? of? Yes, how my, please. Um, so we were talking about the Grateful Dead and um, I brought in a, a friend of mine who has written a lot about the Grateful Dead, who hosted a Grateful Dead, a, you know, nationally syndicated Grateful Dead program and plays music himself. And I, I had him come in and, you know, I sort of shot him some questions and then, and he brought his guitar. And then he played a song that he had composed about the Grateful Dead. But first he said that when he bought, that he and his friends would go out and buy a Grateful Dead album, and then they would come home and put the LP on the turntable and listen to it together, listen to the whole album. And my students were like, what? That's crazy. You know, the idea of buying a whole album, not a downloading a single, number one. And number two, to listen to it together and, and, to, and then to turn it around and play it again, right? They were fascinated by that. And then he, he really knocked it out of the park when he played uh, you know, a song for them in class. And that, that, that really um, endeared him to them. So, so part of it is just bringing up what it was like to, to experience this music or this, read this literature or this journalism in real time and how different it was then than it is, than it is now. And the impression, the subsequent impression, like right as soon as you said that, I got profoundly nostalgic and sad at the same time because I remember going to Tower Records the day a record was going to be released and you would wait in line and you would go home and you would open it up. You would look at the inside jacket. You would read the lyrics. You would read the back. You would listen to the whole album. And it was a, it was a thing, mm -hmm. the crackles, the pops, whatever on the turntable. And that music at that point became embedded in my DNA. There was something that actually right. happened from this ritualistic way of engaging with somebody's art that they had created, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And, you know, just not to get too far ahead of the story, but Rolling Stone magazine had an important role to play in the music industry at that time. I mean, you know, getting something into Rolling Stone magazine or having Rolling Stone review your record was extremely meaningful um, then in a way that it is not now. I mean, if you want to, if, if, if you want to sell a record now, um, you know, you get an important, you know, person with a big uh, Twitter following to put out a tweet and, you know, that that's much better than getting a 
good review in Rolling Stone magazine. So, of course, Thompson worked for Rolling Stone magazine. He didn't write about music. And Rolling Stone was always more than a music magazine. But, um, you know, it's, it's easy also to, to lose track of how important that magazine was in, in the time, not only for music, but especially for music. Well, it was it was a cultural template of not just what was happening. It was just on the cusp of what was about to happen. You know, they had a very interesting sensibility, I think. Um, and they were willing to look at at stories and and do more than fluff pieces, obviously. But but they wanted this. The, the, they read between the lines, I guess. They were looking for what that could mean in the cultural sense of the art itself yeah i interviewed one person who worked there and then later taught journalism at northwestern university and he said we were um better than anyone hipper and hipper than anyone better in other words you know it's like there were better magazines but they weren't hipper than we were um and there were hipper magazines but they weren't better than we were so they were always kind of threading that needle between kind of countercultural credibility and um, sort of um, success in the in the in the publishing world. I don't in, think there's the anything magazine. equivalent today. I can't think of anything. Can you? I can't. I mean, I'm not even sure it would be a magazine if if it did exist. Um, it might be a website or something like that, but. Um, no, nothing comes to mind. And, and you know, this, it was a really extraordinary thing. And I went to great pains to try to point this out because there were many political magazines at that time, some of which the co-founders of Rolling Stone worked at, like Ramparts magazine. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they were political magazines and they did a wonderful job on politics, also in San Francisco. But um, they didn't have an ad base, you know, so they were they were going out of business. They couldn't keep their they couldn't keep their magazine going. And, you know, Ro Rolling Stone had the ability to, you know, they had an ad base because of the music business. You know, they you know, the music labels would advertise. And then that allowed them to actually do some important political stories or political commentary like Hunter Thompson. And, you know, it's easy to overlook that because, you know, by the time I knew, by the time I was reading magazines, Rolling Stone was around. But before that, you know, there wasn't really anything like that. And the idea that a rock magazine would win national magazine awards for political stories, you know, was, was, was really pretty new. I mean, you're not going to get that from Billboard magazine or Tiger Beat magazine or something like that, you know. So anyway, so that was another thing to do in this, in the Hunter Thompson book is to make sure that people understood that even though it seemed like an odd match, Hunter Thompson coming to Rolling Stone, he was older, you know, in, in some ways he wasn't, you know, the typical, he wasn't at all the typical Rolling Stone writer in many ways, but his stuff really clicked with, with that magazine's audience. And then they were able to kind of push push out the influence from, from their core readership to the culture as a whole. Yeah. And you had mentioned a couple of really interesting things. You really did evaluate and look at the literary appeal versus the social commentary aspect. And you, I think you weave in and out of those. Sometimes they're very discernible. Sometimes they're indiscernible in, in, in relation to Hunter Thompson so how did you approach that and think about that? And how did that show up for you in your own life? 
like your own interests. Well, I think I was always attracted to his voice, even before I had any kind of training or or had you know taken any English classes or gone to college. Even you know, sort of, you know, I I knew about him. I knew that there was something out there. I grew up in the Bay Area, and um, I was born in 1959, so I was a little belated. Um, by the time he's you know he he comes to Rolling Stone magazine in 1970, I'm only I'm only 11 years old, but and you know stuff's coming into the house. Usually probably my older brothers were bringing it in along with all their music. You know, I didn't buy music. My older brothers brought that stuff home and I listened to that. So it was always, it was sort of sonic wallpaper. It was always going on, but I, I wasn't always thinking about it or trying to analyze it or study it for sure. Um, but then the voice, I think when I came back and read some of that material, I really realized that He had a a unique voice. It wasn't something that you found in traditional journalism. It was something much more akin to what you would find in um, American literature, you know, like a Henry Miller or a Norman Mailer or, you know, figures like that that came before maybe Kerouac in some cases. So there was always a kind of literary aspect to what he did. And he, he wanted to be a novelist. He never wanted to be a reporter, that's for sure. But he, you know, he came up with this kind of hybrid where, you know, he was he was doing journalism, but it, but it was always informed by the examples of his literary heroes who usually wrote fiction. Some of them mixed journalism and fiction. The quote that I read: "Fiction is the bridge to the truth that journalism can't reach." Yeah, yeah. and I thought, I "Holy that. shit!" Yeah. <laughs> It's a great quote. He was it a very is. young man when he when he wrote that. And he wrote it to a very significant editor at one of the leading trade publishers. You know, and did other they words, think he, he was full of shit or did they were they like, this is I don't know what to do with this? Or, or well, I mean, I mean, you know, the audacity is so is what's so cool about right. it. In some ways, you know, like he would write letters to the publisher. You know, he was nobody. He hadn't published even an article in a national magazine. And he was writing letters to um, the publisher of the Washington Post and calling him a phony, you know, and I'm just looking at this thinking, what is this guy's game? You know, it's like not the, not what people usually do when they're trying to get on in the world and make a name for themselves in journalism. And so, you know, his, his, you know, the risks that he took, even in his correspondence, you know, but also, but also in what later became known as gonzo journalism. I mean, I had to sit with it for a long time before I realized that every one of those steps forward was a step into the unknown, you know? He didn't know where this was going. That gonzo journalism, which was kind of his signature style, it was not a conscious project that he sat down and said, okay, now I'm gonna invent gonzo journalism and, you know, here's my five-year plan and stuff. It was, it was completely improvised and it was full of setbacks and distractions and, you know, uh, roadblocks. And, and uh, he had a lot of things to overcome. He had a long apprenticeship. And he really struggled with, with these decisions, like, what am I going to write about? How am I going to write it? And, um, and when he first invented Gonzo, he was pretty sure it was a failure, you know, so there was a lot of question marks and unknowns. It was just this sort of almost an accident, in some ways that he created Gonzo journalism in the first place. And when he realized, it took him a little while to realize, oh, okay, that is my unique signature. That's my most valuable literary asset. 
that's what I was supposed to do, right? And then once he got it in it, you know, once he had that idea, it became a kind of franchise. And he, he just kept unpacking it and going back and, and kind of retooling it and repurposing it and refreshing it, maybe for too long in some ways. He dined out on that for a long time. But um, it was really difficult for him to step away from it once that persona, the person who created Gonzo Journalism and seemed to be, especially to his readership and the culture at large, it seemed like he was living this kind of Gonzo lifestyle. And then over time, he realized that that's what people expected him to do. There's two things to that. One is as a writer, recognizing when you do come to a place within your own time, circumstance, continuum, where whatever it is that you feel like writing, you're just so honest with it. And you realize, I don't give a shit if who takes it or likes it. I mean, you want to be liked, but recognizing that. But then the second part of that, I had written the question about what do you think about the notion of creating or conjuring an identity that grows and grows Mm -hmm. and the pressure or expectation to live into that identity? Do we create our identities based on what we do or do the identities derive from whatever it is of who we actually are? That's a great question. I mean, I think his best friends would say, there really was something about Hunter Thompson that made gonzo journalism almost impossible to imitate because it all depended on his life decisions and his lifestyle and and the kind of energy that he brought to that. And nobody could do that like he could do that. I mean, William Kennedy, the great uh, novelist who started as a journalist and was a close friend of Thompson's way back, way back when they were both young men, in Puerto Rico, actually, he said nobody could do it. He's called it a spectacular roundelay because the life fed the writing, you know, and then the the kind of celebrity that and the adventures that went along with the writing kind of fed back to the persona. And then, you know, you can't imitate that unless you're willing to live like that and um, sort of sort of take that on and make and let it take over your life, which is what happened in many ways. Both generative, it helped generate material, but it was also degenerate in some ways because, you know, he's burning the candle at both ends and in the middle. And it, it's very difficult to do that for any length of time before you kind of, as he did, kind of lose the capacity to stay sharp and patient and work hard and, and, uh, you know, once you become a celebrity, you know, you can get other people to help you, which is what happened. And you become a kind of brand. And I think he resented that at first, but, but in some ways, when he had a chance to, um, to step away from that, he chose not to, you know, he chose the path of this is who I am. This is what I was meant to do. It was also a good way for him. He was always a freelancer and it was a good way for him to um, get big advances on his books, to get fat checks to go on college lecture tours and stuff. So it paid the bills also not to be overlooked. The way I understood from what I've read is there was something not nihilistic, but not sadistic. I'm not sure what the word is. Um, Then there was drugs. Mm -hmm. But I also feel like 
being in the chaos and fueling the chaos is kind of like, fuck it. I'll go down in flames. I'll take the match. There's a fascination about how dark and deep and we can throw ourselves into the depths and that that into itself, I think fueled from what I understand how he made his, some of his choices, like there's something alluring about being in the depths of despair. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. know how to, to describe it or explain it when I'm thinking. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he didn't like, he didn't want a peaceful life. You know, that's the last thing that he wanted. I didn't quote Jimmy Buffett on this, but Jimmy Buffett was a friend for a while and he would say, Hunter never just wanted to kick back and enjoy himself and, you know, out on a ship or something out in the Caribbean and everything's great and mellow. And he would disrupt that. He, you know, he would, he would go out of his way to break the spell and, and to create a certain amount of drama. And in that, of course, that's what he did in Gonzo too. Increasingly, he doesn't go anywhere to report on a story. He goes somewhere and creates a kind of situation that becomes the story and then he reports on it. And that's the difference really between Gonzo and say the new journalism, which he practiced along with Tom Wolfe and Joan Didion and others. They were also participating in their stories and were characters in their stories but in some ways, you know, Thompson became the story, you know, in, in his, his, sometimes he'd go to cover the Super Bowl and wouldn't even go to the game. You know, he'd go to the Kentucky Derby and, and didn't tell you who won the race. It was all about what was happening with him and his wingman, you know, Ralph Stedman or Oscar Acosta or, you know, somebody else. So, so that became another staple or signature. That became another element of gonzo journalism, too. And it was really popular, you know. And it, as you said earlier, it did have a kind of literary aspect that I think Jan Wenner, the publisher of Rolling Stone, really wanted because it also pushed Rolling Stone into the general magazine category. It wasn't mm-hmm. just a rock magazine or a trade magazine or a teen magazine or a hippie magazine. Now it's a, you know, somebody with, you know, an important writer. And then they, and then they continued to recruit other writers like Tom Wolfe to write for Rolling Stone and, and, and some, you know, some very important people wrote for them over the years, but that really starts with Hunter Thompson in 1970. They were only, the magazine was only three years old at the time. Yeah. When you say it like that, that, that does put it in context to be only three years old also gave them some pliability to extend themselves a little bit, maybe in new ways. And the irony of it is, and there was, there was another quote in your book, uh, Savage Journey that that had described Thompson had a capacity for mayhem, and that was a minor side effect of personality that functions as a machine for exposing liars and hypocrites. Yeah. So to that point, because of who he was and the way he created these stories around him in the context of these other things going on, that was the nature of the work. Yeah. Yeah, he was really, really good at at um, sensing and exposing phoniness. You know, one of his favorite books in the 1950s was Catcher in the Rye. You know, that kind of Holden Caulfield, adolescent, you know, looking at the culture and not so impressed, you know, at the authenticity of what, of, you know, the people or the institutions that he was encountering. And Thompson always had that had that ability. He was really good at finding the weak spot, 
maybe exaggerating it a little bit, making fun of it, and um, and letting that become the the kind of um, starting point for what he wanted to write. He he was a master of it, really. And of course, the the person that he most went after uh, during his prime was the president of the United States, Richard Nixon. And you know, he 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 spared nothing. You know, I mean, this was a sitting president who was elected, re-elected in a landslide, you know. And nine days later, Thompson compared him in the pages of Rolling Stone to a werewolf. You know, there's a werewolf in the White House right now. And, you know, and, and he, and he, you know there was this kind of fully developed portrait of this horrible animal kind of jumping out of the window of the White House and, you know, on the, <laughs> under the full moon and, you know, <laughs> It's just, you know, it's it's amazing, really. And, you know, one of his biographers, William McKean, said, you know, in, in many ways, Nixon was kind of his muse. And, you know, so he did have he did have this ability to expose liars and hypocrites. Now, the other side of that is I don't think he was very useful. As I say in the book, he he wasn't really good at growing up. You know, it wasn't like he, over time, you know, sort of began to think deeper about his own experience or his own culture. I mean, even in his 60s, he's kind of doing the same thing that he was doing in his 30s. Other people, you know, grew, tried different things. I think of Joan Didion, for example. You know, she, you know, the voice stays the same, the sensibility stays the same, but she's trying out new topics. And then later in life, she does that kind of grief work when her daughter dies and her husband dies. And those become some of her best known works. Hunter Thompson never really had that third act, you know? And so that has to be kept in mind too, when we're trying to assess his achievement. There was something mentioned in the book about this body of letters that is archived and not accessible, that it's privately owned. Did that would drive me crazy if I was writing this to think, and I had read those letters, knowing those letters were so important to the yeah. story because they're so revealing about how he didn't give a shit off camera, so to speak, either mm -hmm. that who he was was who he was, how he went about it was how he went about it. His flaws were his flaws. And it would, mm -hmm. if I would think as a writer, if I were doing the research to know that there's this amazing body of work that is somewhere stashed. Yeah. Well, I mean, those letters that have been published, which I, I think are remarkable, edited by Douglas Brinkley in two fat volumes. Um, you know, I, I love those letters and I'd love to see the rest of them, but I assume that there's some, they're among the best ones, right? There, there's probably a lot of other ones that aren't maybe quite as impactful. But it also, it also shows you what he was trying to do, what his decision-making process was in real time, what his model of authorship was. There's so, it's so rich, right? As a kind of resource for trying to write about him as, a, as an author that um, it, it becomes indispensable. And you're right, there was supposed to be a third volume. It had a cover, it had a title, it had an ISBN number. You can still order it on, on uh, Amazon. It was supposed to come out, you know, like 15 or 20 years ago. And, you know, it just never came out. And I'm not sure why nobody's really talking about publicly why that never, why that never came out. Presumably somebody who's still alive and had some power over the situation said, no, do not publish that um, for whatever reason. And I can only speculate what that might be. 
And then there are all the other ones that didn't make it into the third volume. So the second volume goes up through the mid seventies. So that whole period after his kind of peak era as a writer, 1965 to 1975, we don't have those letters. And I would be most interested in that. You know, I, right. I feel like because everybody knows about all those other parts of his life, that the other part of his life, I mean, the fact that he killed himself with a gun with his family in the next room, right. you know, just, I mean, we know he was had drug issues and, and depression and, and all these other things, but mm-hmm. it's almost like. I, I don't know. I would just think as, as a researcher, as a writer, as the things that I would be curious about, I, I would want to, because that is the honest part. That's yeah. the, that's the honest part. Right. Right. And I'll, I'll be honest too. I mean, mostly I was interested in, in, you know, his, his life as a writer. So if, if these were letters, for example, between him and his wife that didn't have to do with his writing or never affected his writing, I'm okay with, you know, go ahead keep those private. But we know, and Juan Thompson, um, Hunter's son told Mm -hmm. me, you know, they're in this storage facility in the Los Angeles area. It's owned by a consortium. Uh, It's the, the consortium includes Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp has talked about in interviews. I think the last one I read was in Rolling Stone, I think, but what he would like to do with, you know, with that archive I think he was talking about taking it out on the road, turning it into some sort of, I don't know, but I would much, I would, at some point, I would definitely like to see that material. 800 boxes of material should go to a research library, you know? And I did hear some rumors that maybe they were, they were shopping it to a research library. I, you know, I don't know, but ultimately if we're really going to study Hunter Thompson, we need, we need to see that material. I mean, it goes back to when he was 10 or 12 years old. And it goes right up to his death, presumably. So there was that quote or something that he had written to his wife that was supposedly could be akin to like a suicide note where mm-hmm. it said, no more games, no more bombs, no more walking, no more fun, no more swimming. 67. That is 17 years past 50, 17 more than I needed or wanted. Boring. I am always bitchy no fun for anybody. 67. You are getting greedy. Act your age. Relax. This won't hurt. Yeah. And as you say, Juan and his um, family were in the house at the time and no one was surprised. You know, he talked about how that's how he wanted to go out. Everybody knew that. Everybody that knew him well Mm -hmm. knew that. And he had, you know, 20 or more loaded guns in the house uh, at all time, all time. And he had a hip problem. You know, he, he couldn't get around. He was in a wheelchair. The football season was over at that time. He was writing for ESPN, you know, which was, you know, he loved sports. He never got tired of sports, but you know, that's how he started his career, but it was a little bit of a come down from (laughs) where he was, you know, before that he, and, you know, some of the columns were pretty good, but he was struggling even to get columns out um, at that point. So he'd been in a long decline, you know, physically as an author. um, He, you know, he still valued his friends. He still had an audience. And, um, but, you know, he was, he was sad, 
you know? So um, as I say, it didn't, it didn't really surprise anybody that he would, he would take his own life. So when you're teaching uh, topics related to him and to culture, how do you think people that are wedded and embedded into this idea of getting their information with such frivolous or superficial measures? How do you immerse people into the idea of the context of culture? Well, I mean, in some ways, you know, there, there's a couple layers to the, your question, which is a great question, because, you know, I don't think Thompson was a political wizard, but I think his commentary, which was over the top, you know, very hyperbolic at the time, but much of it was also prophetic. You know, there was there's a way that you go back and look at it, and you think, you don't think, wow, this guy was a deep political thinker, but you do say, you know, it holds up pretty well, right? The stuff that he said about Nixon, for example, though exaggerated, was not too far off, off base. And many, you know, U.S. historians have said that because we now can see what Nixon was saying in the White House. We have those tapes of his telephone calls, you know? So in many ways, his, his impulses and his, his insights were pretty good. He was also this super astute media critic, and we never have needed that more than we need now. We need to be able to listen to these various outlets and sift through it and see what see what's sound and see what's ridiculous and, and disinformation or misinformation. And, and I think he helped us do that and kind of raised that as an issue in real time. Um, but he had a spectacular style that he, you know, and, and that was a big part of what drew people to him. It wasn't like he was a serious, somber, analytical guy who made claims and supported it with evidence and won arguments. And, you know, he didn't do that. He was, he was funny. And, you know, you read him for the invective and the satire and the rollicking, you know, the persona and so on. So, so yeah, you have to get that context right, both for his work, and then you have to sort of tr- see which parts of that work um, have held up and then maybe try to explain why. What do you think students are mo- most interested in when you sit in a classroom and they didn't, they were born after 9-11? How do you, how do you, because that to me, I'm a teacher as well. Mm-hmm. And I think educating uh, and getting people to make sense of things within a context as it relates today mm-hmm. is part of the magic of being a good educator. Right. Well, what I find in my classes is that people kind of perk up. Uh, my students kind of perk up when we get to the sixties. And one of the reasons I think is because it's a youth culture, you know, the, the things that, you know, are animating people in Berkeley and San Francisco and Oakland and elsewhere um, we're, we're doing that because, you know, well, 25 or 50% of the American population was under the age of 25. Young people really mattered in a way, and their culture mattered. And in some ways, it was mattering for the first time, you know, mm-hmm. that there was a youth market that you could sell records to these you know, to these kids and stuff. Now, you'd always have been able to sell records to kids, but, but the records were saying something. It wasn't just, you know, I love you and and, you know, let's go to the dance or, you know, it, it was commentary uh, in real time and real on real stuff that was happening in the culture. So I think students are still attracted to that. Um, and so one of the things, for example, I have my students read uh, Hunter Thompson writing about 
the Haight-Ashbury in 1967. He wrote about the summer of love for the New York, New York Times Magazine. So did John Didion. And, and then to, to just look at the way she wrote about it, the way he wrote about it, and then try to figure out, you know, you know, to look at how they did it and to see what parts of it really work and what parts of it, you know, need some explanation or contextualization. And, um, but since I'm teaching in San Francisco, it's also a way for them to understand, you know, how things got to be the way they are now. So there's always a True. bigger, bigger story that we're, that we're trying to tell. Mm-hmm. If you were to meet Hunter today or have a conversation, I'm guessing as a writer, because I know I've written about people and especially if they're no longer here, I always wonder if I were to meet them, what would I say? Have you ever thought yeah. about what you would say? I'm not sure, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not sure I was his kind of guy, you know. But assuming um, that you're in a room. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And there he is. And you have a chance to go up and, and have a conversation. What right. do you say? Well, I did call him one time. Um, you know, I, I wanted to interview him for uh, a book that I did about one of his editors, Carrie McWilliams. And I had, you know, just to do that, I had to contact somebody who put me in touch with somebody else who gave me the telephone number. and told he said okay are you funny i said well you know <laughs> yes How, are you smart you know yeah i'm pretty smart okay good he likes funny smart people um here's what you do you you start calling at midnight and let it ring you know and then um just call on the hour every hour until until he picks up the phone and i thought okay you know i mean uh, I never got through. I got his answering machine, and and uh, which I couldn't really understand. And and this is toward the end of his life. I mean, the book came out the year that he that he passed away. So, um, but I think he, you know, he likes sports. I'd probably, you know, and politics. And I like sports and politics. So I would probably and music. And I would probably find something there. Guys, you know, are lucky in some ways because you can always talk about sports. If, if, you know, you meet another sports fan, you can play with your mouth talking about, you know, sports until you find what really, you know, you know, what really might bring you together a little closer. I know, and, but if you weren't worried about the bonding or what he thought of you and yeah. you had, if oh, you I would had, be worried. <laughs> I know, but if you didn't, if you could yeah. just really know something and ask yeah. him something, what yeah. would that be? Well, this sounds, I mean, this is, sounds like finger wagging and I'm not sure I would, I would be able to pull it off, but one of his reviewers and later in life said, you know, it's kind of weird. He's, he's in his sixties and he's not really asking himself about his own life or his own life and times. I mean, he's still doing the gonzo shtick. I mean, at what point does a writer try to sit down and really try to make sense of his own experience? And um, I guess I would want an answer to that question too, although it's kind of a rude, you know, question to put to somebody. But if I felt like I knew him well enough, or could say it or bring it up in a way that would get him to think about it, then I would I would try to do that because, you know, there are some stories in the book about about some of his editors who sort of said, you know, the Gonzo thing has played out. Why don't you kind of step away from it and start over and come up with something new? And he. He opened his wallet, took out his wallet, took a tab of acid, split it in half, ate half of it, washed it down with some beer and put the other half 
of the tab back into his wallet. And that was his answer to that question. You know, I'm not doing that. You know, I'm not going to reinvent myself. I'm not going to refashion myself. I'm not going to move away from Gonzo. I'm going to, not only am I going to keep writing it, I'm going to keep living it, you know? So that, I think, you know, that's a big existential decision. And I think that was a really meaningful one for him during those times, even though he was, he felt like the myth was taking over and sort of crowding him out in his real life and even his work. You know, in some ways the work was being obscured because his personality was so dominant. Um, What's the know? work that you would do for yourself? What would be the thing that you would sit back and reflect on your life? And aside from the persona of a teacher or a published author, what is the work that you haven't written? Wow. What a great question. I'm not sure my life, you know, would be that interesting to many people, but um, you know, one thing I want to do going forward is tell stories in a different way. And that was my other question is if there are styles that you haven't yeah. yet tried mm -hmm. that would deepen your relationship to writing in a new way. Cause I believe that the writing that we do when we do it for ourselves can deepen our connection to ourselves and gift us back parts of ourselves if we're doing it honestly and for ourselves and not for any other purpose. So if you've written biographies and journalistic pieces and critical pieces, what is the work that's not yet written and what is the style that you haven't yeah. yet tried? Well, I'm not really ready to write about myself and my experience, except, you know, in the usual kind of um, pedestrian ways, like, you know, this is what I do and, and um, I'm happy to answer any questions you have, but you know, I'm really much more interested <laughs> in this other thing, you know. Uh, That's kind I of do. a deflective response, <laughs> yeah, but you yeah, know, yeah. I'll just so call it what it pay, is. Pay no attention it's okay. to behind the curtain, you know. <laughs> okay, Oz. <laughs> yeah, but I do, I do want to try something that's a little bit more where the narration is really more important and um, to try to bring to life uh, a different time and place by following some, some characters around over the course of one year. And it would be, you know, if I do it right, I think it would read more like a novel than what I've been doing so far. And um, if you pick the right time, especially and the right characters, I think it could be it could be really interesting. So, and I've never done that. Are you willing to put something out there that doesn't have to have a commercial return? Uh, well, you know, you want people to read it. I think it's a lot of work. You go, um, if, if not now, later. You know, but I mean, you know what it's like. You go into a little room, and I, I've compared it to putting together a hundred thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. You know, it's like, um, okay, you know, where does this go? You know, oh, how about there? Because it's just an incredibly methodical, slow, um, careful way to work. And, um, you know, you've got to make sure everything's right. You've got to rewrite and rewrite everything. And you got to imagine, you know, where the, how the reader's going to take this in. And it's a lot of imaginative work to do, even when you're you're just telling a, something in a very straightforward way. But I do what I do want to, you know. I studied narrative theory, you know, when I was in grad school, and I I know that my own narrative style is I try to make it disappear in some ways. I try to be a kind of clear window pane that the reader can see through and is not really noticing, 
the decisions I'm making. I've always thought that if I'm doing my job right, you don't really notice me. Right. I think that would be interesting to do it the exact opposite to where right, right. the narrative style is you. Mm-hmm. And, in, and and even if it didn't go anywhere or it didn't create any, you know, uh, commercial product per se. I mean, I, I, I believe that writers who have done great jobs of telling other stories about other people would be so shocked once they start telling their stories about themselves. They are also very uncomfortable. I mean, your reaction right away was like, (laughs) it was like a vampire in the sun, (laughs) garlic up in here. But, (laughs) but, you know, I also think that, um, and it, it doesn't mean that it's about you. It's about your voice in in the creation of the story it's exactly Mm -hmm. opposite of what you've been trained and spent your whole life doing it's the antithesis of that right but i mean there's a sneaky thing that 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 teachers and academics do and that is that they slowly sort of tell stories about related things until there's a kind of body of work there that you can say you know i did it that's Um, true you know, you can't write about this without mentioning what I did. I mean, there, there's a there's some. Let's face it. You know, there's some there's some ego there, but it's not the usual way of hey, look at me. You know, I um, look look what happened to me in my life and and so on. So, but but your the question is so great because I really do. I think I have gotten to the end of the line with with. Um, uh, you know, this I think of as the third part of an informal trilogy on mm-hmm. the San Francisco counterculture. I've also, out of those four books, I've all three of them have been about political journalism. Um, I could see doing one more, but but I don't think it's going to happen. You know, for reasons that you know don't probably don't need to be explored here. But but I do have another idea that I'm pretty excited about. That is a a little less um, obviously academic and and kind of you know with the footnotes and you know trying to make sure that all your everything is kind of buttoned up and you know um sourced and all that stuff i want to tell a story and um i want to i want to bring some characters and a place and a time to you know i want it to be in kind of sharp vivid focus there's a lot of ways to to approach that i mean i think as an academic writer as a scholar as a as a literary critic the pieces of those that hundred thousand piece puzzle are so finite and uh, specific the freedom in being able to explore and write and tell stories outside of any of those bounds where it's not even a puzzle it's something Mm -hmm. completely else reimagined Mm-hmm. is where I get excited when I'm talking to writers and working with writers, because oftentimes they don't even ask themselves those questions. They're too busy writing the stories of other people. And it's right. an interesting thing of the writers that I've interviewed for them to even recognize that there is possibility in yeah. my story. What does that right. mean? Right. I do not right. speak this, un, this unfamiliar, <laughs> strange language. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're, I love what you're saying. And I also think, you know, that when you get to this stage of the game, um, there's something about the act of writing. It's it has a kind of narcotic quality, right? Where you're you know you're sort of going under. You're so absorbed in what you're doing. The hours passing. You're you're not really aware of that. And I think that kind of pull um, and that kind of absorption, total absorption, is something that um, 
people want every day sometimes. It's a little bit like, you know, those old jazz players that needed to play their horns every day or they didn't feel good. Can you be creative without the craft? Can you, can you set aside the craft and the expectation of the craft and the formality of the craft to create the jazz, to be in that creative, spontaneous space? I'm going to find out, you know, I'd like to find out. Yeah. Uh, we'll see. You know, I have this, I have a concept and, and uh, I wrote a proposal and then lost it. You know, it was, it was some time ago, and, but I want to come back to it. The laptop was stolen. I, was, I, I can't even remember. It was long, long kind of silly story, but that's okay. Cause I have it kind of in my head and I need to start over anyway. Right. And, um, you know, I'm getting advice about it, about its commercial prospects. And is this something that anybody's going to want to look at? And it's some, in some ways, you know, that's, what's one good thing about having a few books out already that, you know, I've, I've done that and now I can, I can try something else. And I, I do, I haven't talked about this with anybody else. I'm glad you're asking about it. If you wanted help just anecdotally to, to bounce it off, like I'm so, that's my lane. Like I'm so yeah, good yeah. at that. I, the creativity without the craft yeah. is where I thrive and help others thrive. I, cause I feel like, especially for writers, I had an editor here. He came to Santa Fe for a weekend to one of my writing retreats and he had spent decades working and editing and being with other people's words. It's such an, an, an enormous ask for somebody who's used to that part of their DNA to really yeah. look at and express and figure out what that other part creativity without craft writing without purpose, what does that mm. mean? And, yeah. um, but I think every writer, especially academic writers and, and people who are, you know, so embedded in the, the educational academic realm as you mm -hmm. are as a person. And as a writer, I, I would be so curious to hear what, what's there and what, yeah. what comes up. That's yeah. the story that we don't tell ourselves even. And as we said earlier, I mean, every, everything he did was a step into the unknown. The stuff that made him famous was an abandonment of all the things that other people were doing. And, and he, there was no guarantee of success at all. There was nothing inevitable about that success. And it surprised him when it was successful. So, but, you know, the other thing I was thinking about uh, when you were mentioning that is that, I mean, in some ways we kind of do it um, orally too. You know, if you start getting excited about something and you're talking with somebody, including my students, although, you know, sometimes I don't expect the same kind of excitement or intensity because, you know, they're just being, they're just being um, exposed to some of this information for the first time. But when you find somebody else who's into it and you can kind of geek out together, and I'm sure you've had that uh, kind of situation or conversation a million times, and there's a kind of thrill to it, you know, you find this person who's kind of obsessed with the same thing you are. And uh, you can just sit there and gabble away. And, and you start to get a feeling for what is interesting to you and what's interesting to other people. And then, you know, how to put that across um, in the best possible way, I think is always a, a simple first step. You know, I've always thought that, you know, talking is a sort of what we know about what we know about just from talking to each other is a really deep well to draw on when you're, when you're writing as well. And the writing is, you know, a technology and 
it's very different from talking. You have to imagine the other person who's not there. And, you know, it's not a dialogue. You have to imagine a dialogue and the other person's part of it. And um, it's very strenuous. Well, it's no different as a writer who has been embedded in writing about other people as a formal structure, as a practice, as a, as a craft of experience and education, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When, when we're, we're no different than, than most people that try to live up to the personas, we don't step outside of our own personas to actually see what's there. And I think that's why people like us although we wouldn't want Hunter Thompson's life, appreciate and value that he always stepped out into the unknown about the ramifications of his own exploration of whatever was in front of him, mm -hmm. whatever interested him. We all wish and wonder about the stories that we haven't yet written. I mean, if we're really curious and reflective, even if we can't get to them right now, when we say someday, most people I know want to know more about their stories that they haven't yet written. They just don't know how to yeah. get there. They don't even know how to ask it. Sometimes they don't even acknowledge that it can be a question in their life. Yeah. It's fascinating to me. Yeah. And just, you know, one example from Thompson's body of work is when he, when he covered the 1972 campaign trail, he could have turned that into a polished narrative you know, because he did the dispatches in real time and then he turned them into a book, in which case he knew who won the race. He could go back and, and recast the whole thing as a kind of unified, polished novel. And he didn't, um, which I thought was significant. He kept it what he called a kind of jangled campaign diary. Mm -hmm. He wanted it raw. He wanted it spontaneous in real time. Mm -hmm. he, wanted, he wanted it as a, more of as a kind of recording of his mm -hmm. experience than as a kind of um, polished uh, presentation that, you know, sort of opportunistically, you know, you know that, that people could read as a novel. That mm -hmm. was the formula that was popular when he came to the game and he resisted that temptation, even though it was tried and true. That, that was a formula that worked. Right. When you look at the culture and the sort of where we are now, where would you say you as a writer and as a person, where would you say we are failing and where would you say we are thriving? I mean, the failures come to mind very quickly. I, you know, not to put it in Thompson's language, but, you know, what he called the death of the American dream was kind of giving up on things about America that I thought were very valuable. I still think that, you know, I didn't, I didn't go along with his conception of what that was in every case. But I do think that we've forgotten some things that uh, were very valuable. Um, and I, I personally benefited from and my family and every, most of the people I knew. You know? And I mean, not, not to get too technical about it, but I mean, we're not investing in ourselves in the, in the same way that we used to, you know, public dollars into things like education and health. And, you know, it's, it, what I don't get about it is it's, it's, it's good for business, too. Right. Mm -hmm. you, want a, you want an educated, healthy workforce. Why wouldn't you want that? You know, it's just so bizarre to me. Uh, I, I worry about journalism, mm -hmm. you know, for sure. Close, close to home here. Uh, we have a broken kind of business model for it now. And uh, I don't see anything on the way that would um, change that situation. You know, the Internet kind of broke the old business model. There was nothing you know, sort of timeless or universal about that earlier model. Mm. It's not coming back, 
you know, right. and that was like 25 years ago. Right. We've been in free fall ever since. So I worry about that. And uh, I, I mean, I got a long list. So I don't know how much time, how much time do you have? Well, no, I mean, I think it's interesting because you do study culture and politics and the commentary on those things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I see, I see some good things too. I think, you know, in the news, even today, we're seeing, we're seeing efforts, uh, successful efforts um, to be more inclusive. Um, I also think, you know, we want to balance that with really putting things on, and you got to put something on, on people's plates, you know, mm -hmm. and I don't think we've done a very good job of that. It's weird to me that, I mean, you can look around and you see other countries living really nice lives with, you know, labor unions and pensions and vacations and healthcare. And, you know. You've traveled quite a bit, haven't you? Fair amount, not, yeah. you know, not as many as some for sure, but um, you don't even have to travel. You know, you can watch a Michael Moore film and figure that out. Right. Um, that people are, you know, in many ways are living better lives than we are and we're richer, you know? So it just defies logic in a way. I think the, the, we're distracted, I think a lot. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, there's always this endless kind of um, water cannon of images and information and not all of which is, I think some of which is designed to distract us. And so in my classes, you know, I like, you know, sometimes I want people to slow down a little bit and just, you know, try reading and writing, see how that goes, you know, and, and develop a little bit more interiority and just sit with stuff for a little bit. Yeah. I have an example of that. When I, when I would go to the theater, I remember at one time there was, you get dressed up and it was a whole thing and you go into the theater and you sit at the dark, the theater before the show starts and you would look around and you would see how people are dressed. And there was this like waiting period of just being and observing. And this was before phones. Mm -hmm. And I think I went to a show a couple of years ago before COVID. And I remember looking around and everybody was on their phones, like the screens, the faces were lit up. And it was like that waiting period was, didn't exist anymore of that yeah. vestibule of between being outside in the sunlight and being inside in the theater and absorbing and being present for that. That's where the interiority, even if it felt like it's five minutes of reflection, it was still five minutes of reflection. Yeah, 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 I wasn't yeah. looking at a cat meme or a, <laughs> a TikTok video yeah. yet another person dancing. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so I hear you. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, if I had known, I probably would have prepared. I, I don't want to be too downbeat, but um, and, you know, there's a lot of interesting things happening for sure. But, uh, you know, I look at my students and their experience and um, it's getting harder. You know, it's getting harder for students at San Francisco State to do what they want to do and in some cases need to do to take care of themselves and their families. And I'm very aware of that. You know, I have kids and, you know, you want, you, you know, you, you get, you know, you worry a little bit. And um, so I want to make sure that my students have um, the opportunities that, that they're going to need. And, uh, and you have to battle for that in ways that I don't think uh, weren't clear to me, at least when I was growing up, that there was some, that there was a kind of shooting war going on over whether or not people should be able to go to college or something. Yeah. Right. Appreciate you taking the time to share all your thoughts. I, I can't wait to finish reading this book. I've Savage Journey. I'm 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 in it. 
And you've definitely done an amazing, thoughtful, reflective, fair job, I would say, of approaching the man and the myth and the material, those three things, because they're three different things in my mind. Yes. And I could see that you, you, you addressed each one on its own merits, not to ignore that they don't overlap or intersect. I mean, that was one thing. It was just about the process, not, not to go down a rabbit hole here. But one of the things was in writing about him, you know, I had misgivings about him as a person. And, you know, so the question was going to be, you know, how am I going to present this? And you can't with him say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap some police tape around the work and just say, let's just work at, look at the work and not look at him as a person. But his work was so autobiographical and it was dripping with moral judgments at every turn as satire usually is. You can't, you can't separate him. And as you mentioned earlier, you can't really separate him, the work from the persona either. So, so you had to look at those things and, um, and address each as honestly as, as possible. You couldn't say, well, yeah, you know, he was, he was a bad guy, but look at this great novel. Um, or, you know, people do that with movies and paintings. And, but I think with his work, there was just, there was no way to do that. Everything was kind of jumbled up. So to be able to tease those things out and to, and to be as fair as possible was, was kind of came to be the challenge. And I, I wasn't expecting that when I started, but that's that, Somewhere along the way, that's what I finally decided had to be done. And that's kind of what I got out of what I've read so far. Uh, you know, me looking at it as a reader, me looking at it as a writer, wondering how you as a writer approached it. Um, and also as an educator, you know, I do look at it as somebody, because I do teach students about reading and thinking and writing and the material that I present to them and trying to get them to engage in it so that it means something to them and to their life. Mm-hmm. And so putting it forward in a way that doesn't insert me, but yet presents why I feel like it's valid in a way that gives them a chance to kind of tread their own water with it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I have noticed with my students that they're um, very good at, at writing about their own experience. And maybe that's, maybe that's been an emphasis in their educations to this point. And I welcome that. You know, I want to hear it, especially since a lot of my teaching is remote now. I actually am learning more about my students now in some ways than I was when we were face to face, because that's the only way for us to sort of meet. And I'm really, I mean, it's amazing the kinds of experiences that they're having in the Bay Area right now. You know, I've learned a lot from, from these short you know, introductions, you know, it's like, oh, I like, um, you know, I like hyphy music and skydiving and Sherlock Holmes. You know, it's like, wow, okay. You know, tell me more about that. Yeah. So I'm, I am in my own, you know, pedagogy trying to incorporate more of that sort of writing that, that you're talking about because, and I'm also teaching memoir more. And um, so, cause I think it's a mode of discovery, not only to read about somebody else's experience, but then to get that to, you know, to, to, to think about how your experience and how it compares with theirs. So that's one of the classes. And I find it very gratifying. It's my uh, favorite sort of thing to work on and teach. Definitely. It's my favorite thing. I believe I wrote in my first book that I believe people want to be seen 
I believe people want to be heard. I believe people want to be understood and I believe people want to be loved. And I think from those four things, helping them find a way to connect to their own voice through writing as a bridge between themselves and the parts of themselves that they necessarily have had to let go of survival, Mm -hmm. time, circumstance, whatever it is, but reconnecting them through writing and memoir has been so profound and powerful, Mm -hmm. very inspiring every day. I agree. Yeah, for sure. And I'm glad, I mean, even though it was belated, I'm glad. And it it was kind of, in some ways, it was a, it was an adaptation to the fact that, you know, we weren't face to face anymore. Right. And I needed something from them to know where they were because I can't see them responding to what I'm saying even. So um, anyway, glad I did it and I'm going to keep doing it. I started doing it in the one class on the memoir. Now I do it for all my classes and, um, and they're good at it, you know. And we're I, always I, learning. Hey, yeah, as, yeah, we're always sure. learning, especially yeah. as teachers. We're always learning. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'll look forward to staying in touch and hearing about your next project, which I don't even think you have. I, you have no idea what's coming. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be awesome. It's going to be really awesome. It's going to yeah, surprise you. I'm eager to get started, you know, and I, you know, I've been, I've been putting it off as I promote this book, but I, but I, I've got an idea and I'm not going to put a lot of pressure on myself to, to knock it out quickly, you know, but um, yeah, I, I really want to, I really want to try something new. So Peter Richardson is the author of Savage Journey, and it is a wonderfully written book, biography about Hunter S. Thompson, and it's been out getting lots and lots of critical acclaim. I suggest if you want to learn something new and gain new insight into something we think we already know, this is your book. And uh, people can get a hold of you on your website, correct? That's right. PeterRichardsonBlogspot.com. Or, you know, or Facebook or, you know, a bunch of all the, all the other things. All the applicable socials. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. If now's the time to unearth your story, or you just have to write that book, don't let fear or overwhelm stop you. Reach out. I'm here to help you achieve your creative writing dreams. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on this show, share it with someone you think is in need. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. Hey, reach out. Find me at janalopez.com. 